You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Well, hi, friends. So fun to launch this series. I really love the Word of God, but I have been avoiding this book for like 20 years on staff here at Westside. And since Steve stole my thunder, I might just call an audible and we're going to launch Zephaniah this morning instead. Well, joke's on you. <laughs> no, I, I, Romans to me just is very deep water. Like it's, it's a lot. But I, I love the Word of God. And I think that it's a little bit like um, if we were to get in a boat and sail from the shore of an ocean to an island and then sail back again. And we'd be astounded at the scenery and the water and how beautiful it is. And if you did that every day, every day for like a month, by the end of it, you'd be like, you know, I've pretty much seen all there is to see on this stretch of water. Even though it's the ocean, I think I'm good. I think I'm ready to look at something else. But if you put on a mask and a snorkel and go down beneath the surface of the water, there's like schools of fish and sunken treasure and all the things underneath the ocean. And that's like the word of God. When we start to dive beneath the surface, we discover things that we can't possibly discover when we just read it like we already know it. And so that is going to be what we do this summer with the book of Romans. And if Romans sounds overwhelming to you, you're right. You're just right. It is a lot. And so I want to encourage you right off the top, find a translation you really like to read it in. Um, I, I, I love it when people tell me things like, I only want the translation that's accurate. Like, I don't want anyone's interpretation in the Bible. As soon as you read a word of this in English, you've got somebody's interpretation in it. So my recommendation is read the translator you can understand the most or line them up next to each other, a couple of different translations, and you'll get the idea of what is being said. So Romans is a brilliant book, and I'm excited to dive into it. My job today is to give you an overview of what the book looks like. What, what is Paul doing? Why is he showing up here? Um, N.T. Wright says this about the book. Romans is neither a systematic theology nor a summary of Paul's life work, but it is by common consent the masterpiece, his masterpiece. It dwarfs most of his other writings, an alpine peak towering over hills and villages. I would love to be the kind of writer who could write a book like Philippians and have somebody call it a village, you know, instead of the alpine peak. Uh, it's, it's the thing that dwarfs it all. And it says, um, not all onlookers have viewed it in the same light or from the same angle, and their snapshots and paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unalike. Not all climbers have taken the same route up its sheer side and there is frequent disagreement on the best approach. What nobody doubts is that we are here dealing with a work of massive substance, presenting a formidable intellectual challenge while offering a breathtaking theological and spiritual vision. So what is that vision? What is Paul saying to us in Romans? The rest of the summer, speakers are going to dive beneath the depths and look at a lot of the things. Today, we're going to kind of march up Pilot Butte. And if, you know, I, I can see my house from Pilot Butte. But if you told me, what does Bend look like from Pilot Butte? I wouldn't describe to you my house. That's not bend. That's just a, my piece of it. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to march up this alpine peak and look out and see what is Paul here for? 
Why did he decide to write this book? This, you, you know, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Pharisee, persecutor of Christians. And then he's blinded by the light, knocked off of his horse, and ends up converting and becomes one of the great missionaries and the writer of most of the New Testament. Um, but so Paul is, is a missionary to everyone, but especially to the Gentiles, those who are not part of the original Abrahamic covenant. He is a missionary to say, you get to come too, everybody in the pool. This is really exciting. The gospel is for everyone. And so that's Paul's, uh, one of his real emphasis is, emphases is that we want to include everyone in this. And so the church in Rome had already existed for quite some time because Paul, as he did his missionary journeys, he established communities of faith in each of these cities and those communities of faith eventually were known as churches. So the church in Rome had existed for a while when Paul is writing this letter, but at one point, probably around the 80, 50-ish time, scholars debate a lot about this period of time. It's really actually an interesting study. But the emperor Claudius kicks all the Jews out of Rome. Um, there's, there's a lot of ideas why the, the prevailing thought is that it was because of warring factions preaching Christ. And it was they were in fights and it was too much disruption. So all the Jews get kicked out of Rome for five years. And then they come back, and when they come back, they find a church that isn't anything like what they left. When they come back, they discover that the Gentiles, that, who are followers of Jesus, have been running the church, and the practices that they have come to know as life aren't a part of this church anymore. And so they start to say, wait a minute, what happened to circumcision? Didn't we all agree? What, what happened to kosher? Every, what, what's going on here? And so it becomes a church that's filled with warring factions. I know we can't relate to any of that, but this is the crazy church that started way back then when they weren't as enlightened as us. And so they're fighting over how it, it what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus now. Whether or not you're one of the chosen originals, how does it look to be a follower of Jesus? And so Paul comes in, and he starts to explain to them, um, the labels that you wear are going to get in the way. They're not bad. Your ethnicity, your nationality, your family name, your tribe. These are all, we all wear them today. We all have a, you know, thing. I am Bo Stern Brady, and just saying my name tells a story of a lot of things that I've been through, some things I'm proud of, some things I'm not. These are things that make up the me that I am and those labels are not bad. I am an American. I am of German descent. I am these things. But they become bad and dangerous when they get in the way of my prevailing identity, which is daughter of God. When it gets in the way of that, it becomes not just damaging to me, but to you. And so Paul is saying, you have taken on all of these labels from, I mean, the Jewish people had labels they were wearing from Abraham, and they were proud of them, and those were getting in the way of what God wanted to do in this new fledgling idea called the church, which is what, this, this is what remains of that church. We are that church. And so it's imperative, I think, that we look at this and we say, what, what are the questions they were asking 
And how do we maintain the distinction of who we are, but live unified inside one body doing his work? What do we do with these labels? And what do we do when they start to get in the way? How do we go back to, to the main thing? My husband and I were talking last night about uh, alignment. And the reason we were talking about that is because we're of that age where uh, we feel like a lot of aches and pains a lot of times. And so we both have become friends with our chiropractor and um, they, who talks a lot about your spine needs to be in alignment and all the things that happen when it isn't. Oh, you have a headache? It's because your spine <laughs> isn't alignment. Your bills aren't paid? It's because your spine's out of alignment. <laughs> that kind of thing. I think he's, he's maybe telling us a lot of... Uh, anyway, so we um, were talking about that just how, how much it, it matters to be in alignment. It matters if your car is in alignment. I mean, it matters. And as followers of Jesus, Romans gives us a grid, something that we can hold up next to our life and say, I need to align with this. I'm not going to align, honestly, I'm not going to align to the Pentateuch. I'm not going to align to the law. I'm not going to align my, my faith up with what other people say, with, with other people's sets of rules. I need to align to something. And what I want to align, align my life with is the person and purpose of Jesus Christ. I, I've started, when I go to bed at night, the one prayer that I pray over and over again, hopefully till I fall asleep, is, am I in alignment with your will right now? In the way that I love my neighbor, in the way that I love myself, in the way that I spend my money, in the way that I spend my time, in the way that I treat my kids. Am I in alignment with your will? Because I've discovered that everything changes when I am. And so Paul is saying you're aligning to the wrong ruler. You're using the wrong plumb line. And he's going to tell us what it is. And it's going to involve three distinct things about the gift of grace and the gift of salvation written over the church. So the first one is, Paul wants us to understand that salvation is wildly inclusive and universally accessible. It is for everyone who believes. Now, this statement is easy for us to read as Americans in the 21st century. We are a melting pot culture. We're used to this being like everybody gets to be a part. But in this culture, in this day, this was a subversive statement. This is a big deal. Like when you consider the Jews walking into that church in Romans saying, if we give up, if circumcision isn't necessary for the Gentiles, is it necessary for us? And isn't, if it isn't necessary for us, what makes us special? What makes us who we are? And if, if, if we give that up, what does it look like for our children in a generation or two generations or ten generations? Who are we even if we let go of this requirement? And so Paul is saying salvation is for everyone. He goes back in the early chapters of Romans. He revisits history and explains how when sin entered the world through Adam, everyone was lost and chained to their own desires. But then through Abraham, God gives the law to the people of Israel. And those people get the law, and the law is sort of like a rickety, scary-looking suspension bridge that goes over dangerous water to get to the presence of God. It works, but it's impossible. 
It's too hard. And so they have it. And as those people who are chosen, who have access to God, access to his voice and his presence, this is what makes them distinct and special. This is what makes them better than the Gentiles. And so the law is really important to them. But then Paul tells them, wait a minute, the law did you no good because you couldn't keep it. The bridge didn't work because you couldn't walk over it. But the bridge does work because it tells you what you need is grace. The law points to our need for grace. The law disqualifies us from every good work and says, just as you are, you get to be loved and accepted and chosen and whole inside the love of God. This is grace and it's beautiful. And the law is beautiful because it points us to that. And so Paul um, compares the Gentiles in Romans 11 to branches that have been grafted into a tree where other branches have broken off. And he appeals to both Jews and Gentiles. And he says, you're not special because you're grafted in and you're not special because you didn't fall off. Everyone is the equal amount of chosen. Everyone lives in front of their good father knowing you are inside the span of his grace. You live in his grace. Thief on the cross, Jewish rabbi. Everyone lives inside the grace of God. Paul paints this picture of full-scale access, global, universal access to the grace of Jesus. I memorized a scripture when I was in, my, I think, my first VBS when I was little. First scripture they taught me was, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, full stop. That was, that was the scripture, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, I think I got it on a little plaque, at, which is like funny to hang on your wall, you're falling short. Just reminder, if you think you're cool today, you're not, you're short, you're falling short. Um, and so I thought that was the scripture literally until I was studying for this message. I was like, that's just a scripture and it's easy to say and it's the Romans road. By the way, the Romans road reduces the book of Romans to something that re bears little resemblance to the actual book of Romans. I mean, it's fine. Just erase it while you read it so you can read it fresh. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and... All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. All, two alls in that scripture. All have sinned and fallen short. That's me, dirty, rotten sinner. All are justified freely, not begrudgingly, not reluctantly, justified freely through his grace. It is this beautiful idea that salvation is for everyone. All have sinned, yes, but that same all are justified. Um, number two, salvation is rescue, immediately and eternally. Salvation is sturdy. It's not as fragile as we treat it. And I'm really, I'm really offended by some of the things I'm watching flying around like right now. If you make this decision, you're not, you're not saved anymore. Uh, oop. I didn't shed that blood. That's not my call to make. I, all have sinned. All are justified. And so... I think we have to understand that when we believe, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, we have the clear grid. When we believe, the love of God is sturdy for us. It is strong. And we need to stop treating each other like we're all walking over the suspension bridge and could fall off at any moment. Because God's love goes the distance. Um, it's 
it's like we can treat marriage like a contract, but we all know in our heads that's not how it works. It's not like if I, then you. If I take out the garbage and you unload the dishwasher. If I love you, then you will love me. If I serve you, then you will serve me. that, That would be silly. Marriage is so much more than that. Marriage is conversation and love and relationship. Marriage is is going through the hard times together. But our society is so cut and run. It's so kind of love and and leave them that we start to put that over Jesus. We start to think that he also views us that way. That if at any moment he can get sick of us and walk away. And that is not his way. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul compares our life as a woman married to a really bad guy. In fact, as a woman who is married, has a legal contract and a physical obligation to sin and death. She is married to a louse of a spouse. That is what he compares us to. And then he says, but when Jesus came and died on the cross, he killed that spouse. He killed the guy so that you could be free to remarry for life. This is brilliant. This is freedom. This is Paul saying, you can't do enough to make him mad at you, to make him pull his grace away from you. He is committed to you for the long haul. He is committed to you in sickness and in death, in life and in health, in rich and poor. He is committed to you. In fact, in Hosea, God speaks through the prophet to a still unfaithful Israel. And he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. He doesn't say anything about as soon as you, then I will betroth you. As to, and if you, if you follow the rules, then you're still engaged to me. But watch out because I might take my thing back. Yeah, I might take the ring back. He doesn't do that. This is all. And how does he betroth himself to us? Jesus' death on the cross. That's when he said, I choose you forever and ever. In our love him and leave him culture, the idea of a forever kind of love is almost impossible to imagine. And so the warring factions in the church in Rome were creating contractual obligations for the other side. If you get circumcised, your inside has love. If you eat this or celebrate that, you're out. But Paul says this, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death or life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That scripture alone is a mountain itself. We could climb to the top of that scripture and look out over the love of God every day for the rest of our lives and never get to the bottom of the way that he loves us. If we aren't able to accept the sturdy, unbreakable love of God for our own lives, we are probably not going to be able to accept it for other people's lives too. When we feel insecure inside the love of God, maybe he's mad at me today. Maybe he wanted to save me yesterday and today he wants a refund. Maybe I don't belong anymore. Maybe I don't fit in this picture anymore. We're going to automatically see through that lens at other people too. 
Maybe they don't fit anymore. Maybe they're not doing enough. Maybe they're not performing enough. Maybe, and it, it, listen, it, we, Paul is talking about salvation. Salvation, uh, th- this idea that God loves me no matter what is such a big deal. This isn't discipleship. Discipleship is I'm going to follow him and walk his way and do his will. And yes, we believe that and we preach that. And I can look inside of areas in my life and say, I am living like a believer in Jesus, but not a follower. And I need to fix that because that. That's discipleship, and that matters. But for what we're here for, to look, stand on this mountain and look at the love of God, we can say the love of God lasts for us no matter what. Number three, salvation is a beautiful before and after story. It's supernaturally transformative. Um, I love a good makeover show. Love it. I love to see houses that are dumps become houses that are beautiful. Love it. Um, Have endeavored to do that in my own homes, actually. And this is what Paul keeps explaining to us. He does it in a beautiful way, kind of uh, method. (laughs) Why can't I think of the word? Methodically. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, front row. You're here for a reason. Doing the Lord's work in the front row. Um, (laughs) Methodically lays out... This idea of before and after, who you were versus who you could be. And as he does this, it is just ripe with this idea, if you're not living in the after, what are you doing? You know, if it, because you were a slave to sin, and that's a terrible life. You were married to the wrong guy. That was a bad life. But now you're the son of a good father. A slave has to beg. A son doesn't have to. A slave has no money. A son has the father's inheritance. All of these things are wrapped up in this gift of salvation. Are you living in it? He says, you were condemned, but now you're redeemed. Are you living condemned? Are you living redeemed? He says, you were living in the law of works, but now you're living in the law of faith. You did have Adam as a father, and Adam fell into sin, and Adam was slave to sin. But now you have a new Adam, which is Jesus, the one who gave everything in order to buy you back. You were a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to obedience. You did have the wages of sin. You were paying wages for your life. And now you live in the gift of grace. Wages versus gift, that's a great before and after. You were living in the flesh, now you're living in the spirit. And this one, so all of those things are right now, we can live in the after of those. But then he says, your present sufferings, you're going to trade in for future glory. That's a then. So in this regard, we're living in the before. The suffering thing. That's still the before, but the promise of future glory is rock solid. Take it to the bank. These present sufferings are not going to kill you. These present sufferings are not going to define your life. You are moving toward future glory. Paul constantly weighs who we are, who we were without Jesus against who we are with him. He is always pointing to the beautiful benefits of salvation. And he is always suggesting, are you living there? Are you living in that? Do you have some work to do in that? You don't have some work to do to make sure you're saved. You might have some work to do to make sure you're living inside the true gift of grace. Because the gospel is not just a ticket out of here. The gospel is 
a change agent for flourishing here. For flourishing here on this broken ground. For flourishing here in this divisive, argumentative, hate-filled culture. For flourishing here in a place where it seems everyone is sad or depressed or anxious or sick. The gospel is a remedy and a way to be able to live flourishing lives inside of a broken world. And I love the question that Paul asks the church. He looks at the church in Rome and he says, you were loved, but the way you're living doesn't look like Jesus. And as we move through this book, we're going to find out exactly why the way they're living doesn't look like Jesus. And we'll use this book like a grid to lay over our own lives and to ask the question to our soul, hey soul, you are loved. Are you living like Jesus? Does your life reflect the peace and presence and joy of Jesus? And I think it's maybe the most worthy question we could ask this summer. I think it's a really important one. And so Jesus, we offer you our lives. We offer you our doubts. We offer you our hope and our gifts and our calling and our money and our relationships and all of our labels so that you can write over our life the name of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would cause us to ask the right questions and to live for your answers on how to become more like you in a world that's desperate for you, the real, real you. We love you. We worship you. We are unworthy of you, but you call us friend. And so you have our gratitude today. And we give you praise and glory. In your name we pray. Amen.